A brief warning to our listeners. The following episode contains discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. From a German orphanage in the mountains of Tanzania comes a story of Maria Nambu. Dealing with complex race issues, abuse, and some of the harshest experiences, Nambu's childhood will both amaze and horrify you as she shares with us her candid and inspirational story of how she was able to hold on to her own light and truth in what was often a sea of darkness. Poignant and graceful and deeply moving, Nambu, as she prefers to be called, is an educator, dancer, writer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. In an interview that inspired me, filled my heart, and at times brought me to tears, Nambu shares in this episode the wisdom gained from enduring painful and challenging experiences that will guide you to a greater place of inspiration and insight. Get ready for an amazing journey. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Your book is so moving and your life journey just has touched me so much. I was telling a girlfriend on the way to the studio today, I hope I don't start crying right away during the interview (laughs) because you think you cry. (laughs) It touched my heart so much, so much. Thank you. Actually, the woman I was speaking with owns a adoption agency here in town. And while it is a very different thing than what you went through, obviously, just what that's like for these children that mm-hmm. go through that process. And, you know, I was not adopted till I was 19. So I always like to be a spokesperson for all the kids who need adoption. I mean, who would dream of adopting a 19-year-old African woman and bringing them to America? I mean, that is completely unheard of. And the woman was 23 and I was 19 and she did it, you know. And that's what I want to talk about today. I I wanted to talk with you about that amazing journey from when you were first dropped off now you were mm-hmm. you were at the Don Bosco home yes. in Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Tell a little bit about the beginning of what it was like for you there. It, it was run by these German nuns. Yes, you know I have to give a little bit of the history why even this orphanage existed. You know those days a long time ago. I always at this point I always tell people my age, you know, 76 years ago, I was, I'm 76 years old. So 76 years ago, mixed race children were not very well accepted in the African society. You know, the white people who usually fathered us, the men never even acknowledged us. And the Africans were very often ashamed of us. So they hid us. Some of us could be hidden and they could live and die. I always say without, I can't imagine without seeing the sun, or feel the wind or the rain, you know. I always say I'm so lucky I was not one of those. 
But so the German nuns came to, were in Africa doing other missionary work, and then one of them decided to take the mixed-race children and, and have a home for us. So word got out around the country that there was finally a home for us, and children, boys and girls came of every age and size, you know, some were 12, some were 24, some were 3, some were 15. I was brought there when I was three days old. So I was a tiny, tiny infant. And of course, I don't remember those first couple of years anyway, you know, at all. But I start remembering very much from the time I was three years old. So that that's why I ended up there is because we had no place in the African society at that time. Things have changed, luckily. So but at that time, that is how it was. As you were there with the nuns, one of the things that was so shocking to me was how abusive the nuns were and the older girls. Mm-hmm. Was it Zami? Correct. Yes. yes. Talk about some of that. Yes. You know, most of the nuns were good, but most of the nuns did not come in contact with us. You know, they had a convent. They did their missionary and convent things. And they came in contact with us like when we went to church or when we had to perform for them or when we went to work for them and cleaning their houses and washing their clothes and working in the fields. But there was a nun who was in charge of us, whom I I really do like until today because I realized she had these 75 little kids to take care of and we were naughty. And so she was very, very strict. She was very strict and I think very often she didn't quite know how to discipline us. So she resorted to beatings. And then there was also another nun who was a school teacher and she was also very, very cruel and they beat us. I think you will see later on how I was beaten till my hands were bleeding. But but uh, not all of the nuns were, there certain nuns were, but the big girls, many of them, I think, they are the older ones who came like at age 19 or 20, and if I was three days or four days or two years or so, they took care of the little ones. They are the ones who most of the time were the truly abusive ones. I think they took all of their frustrations out on us, and they were supposed to take care of us, but we ended up doing all the work for them, and if we didn't do it right, we were always, as far as I can remember, I was just always beaten. That was the part that was so hard in reading is how scary it was for Mm -hmm. so many of the little girls who would wet the beds. Yes. And those older girls would beat them for that. Yes, I know. And that's how it was. And, And those are very, very vivid stories. You know, you never get over them. Part of what was so amazing to me, Nambu, is how you transcended so much abuse. I mean, there was so much physical abuse. And the other thing was there was so much emotional or mental abuse. Exactly. That, yes. that you were told you were bad. You were told yes. that you were unwanted and not valued. How yeah. did you hold on to that precious soul that believed I am not what all these people are saying about me. You know, we were also told that we were were children of sin. And I remember saying to myself, at the same time they're telling us that we are children of God and God loves us. I remember not understanding how we could be both. And one of the weapons or whatever I used to really help me was I was fat when I was little. So they called me Fat Mary. And I really detested that name. I used to cry every time the children or the nuns, they all called me Fat Mary and just bullied me. And I used to cry so much until one time 
I just decided I had no choice. I looked at my situation and I really had no one. You know, not everybody in the orphanage were orphans. Some of them had parents who brought them there because finally there was a place for us, but they went home for holidays. But I was really a true orphan at that point and I had no one. And I don't know how I did it. You know, I, I always have wondered myself, but I, at a very young age, three or four years old, I decided to take that name, Fat Mary, and make this Fat Mary my friend. So when they called me Fat Mary, it didn't hurt anymore. And I talked to Fat Mary. She was so real to me. She was just like my twin. She was not an alter ego. She was not my playmate. We always talked about issues and analyzed. Every time I had a problem, I would sit and talk to Fat Mary. And I realized that Fat Mary always had the answers because Fat Mary was me and had my interest in mind. So that really helped me deal with a lot of the emotional and psychological abuse. And then as far as dealing with some of the physical abuse, I think I always liked to dance. And I felt like, you know, after I was beaten, I would just go and just hide in the toilets because we were forbidden to dance the African way. And I loved how the Africans dance with their drums and all. And I would hide in the toilets and just dance for myself. And I would feel so good when I was finished with one of my little dancing sessions to myself. You know, I forgot everything. So I don't know how I came up with those solutions, but they really worked for me. I read that part when you befriended that part of you, Fat Mary. Yes. Such a beautiful thing. And like you said, it wasn't like you split off or, you know, some people dissociate when they're abused or it wasn't an alter ego, but it was almost like this wise little self within you. Yes. And, you know, I've always felt that necessity is the mother of invention. I had no one, but I had me. And I remember very, very much, you know, thinking I felt at that time, I'm sure there were some people who liked me and were good to me, but I felt like nobody did. And I I think I realized that if I didn't like myself, I was going to die and I wanted to live. I don't know what I was going to live for, but I knew there was a better life. I don't know where I got that. I I knew there was a better life and I was going to go there and I wouldn't get there if I died. So I wanted to, I really, really wanted to live. And I developed this relationship with me, which I, I tell people when I speak nowadays that we have so many solutions within ourselves, even a little child with no resources, with nothing, realized that they themselves were the source of so much of what they were feeling, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So if you feel bad about yourself, if you don't like yourself, everything that's come over here, you will agree when they beat you, when they call you a child of sin or an unwanted child, you'll believe it and you'll feel worse. But if you know yourself, if you love yourself, when there's a problem, you, you are out there and you look at all the people and all the nuns and the big girls and the other girls and you feel alone. You feel nobody really likes you. You know, nobody really wants you. So the only place you have to go is within you because you've already made a decision to like yourself. And that's where you find your comfort. So it didn't matter what they were saying about me out there. I suffered like everybody else, but in my heart, in my soul, in my being, I was happy because I loved myself and it really didn't stick. I always knew that nothing would last forever. That tomorrow was another day. And then tomorrow I would have different challenges. But I always knew if I had myself and I listened to myself and I loved myself, I didn't see how I could lose. Because, you know, even adults, they lose themselves. We go out there, you know, and we look for solutions to our problems. Very often they're within us. 
Nampu was aware from an early age of the importance of befriending herself and learning to have love, compassion, and empathy towards herself, which made all the difference in enduring her at times horrible circumstances. In this next segment, we learn about shamans and African medicine men and how they heal people through the mind-body connection and what was Nambu's saving grace while enduring the brutality she faced in the orphanage. In Africa, there are many medicine men. They call them shamans or medicine men. And when you are ill, when you fall ill and you go to medicine men in traditional Africa and you tell them your aches, okay, my stomach is this, I can't keep food down, I'm tired, I also have a fever. So you give them all your physical symptoms of your ailment. And the medicine man, the first question they will ask you is, with whom have you quarreled? You could have quarreled with yourself, meaning you don't know yourself. You're too harsh on yourself. You don't love yourself. This is a constant quarrel and a source of stress. And very often when you start with that, you can see what led to where you are. And then if it gets worse, of course, you go to the hospital if there's no external uh, causes of your illness. But at least you'll get the peace of mind if you go within yourself and say, okay, whatever you might call it a quarrel, might be a disagreement. It might be not accepting something for what it is. It might just be there's just no agreement within yourself and that kind of manifests itself as a physical illness. So the medicine men were not all that primitive or not so dumb and all because right now people are coming back to all of that. Exactly. Yes. I mean, that's my job. And I really find that's what the journey is, is helping people to come back within themselves. Yes. And that truly what you're saying, that is my experience as well. They might come and sit with me, but I'm not giving them any wisdom. I might be Mm -hmm. a conduit. I feel like a conduit for love or for healing to help them see it within themselves. Exactly. That it's already there. And so I always wonder how come I knew it at such a young age. But then I always say it's because I had no choice. And also I think I was a smart little kid. So I made my own life. It's not like I lived a separate life. It's not like I I retreated into my corner or anything. Oh, I played with the girls. I, you know, I did everything else. But whenever there was an issue, I went to myself to find solutions. And very often I did. Did you feel ever that that guidance was more than you? Did you feel it was God or did you feel like it was the universe? Or how would you describe that? You know, I have always had this sense of the divine in me. You know, when we were told we were unwanted children, you know, we were children, children of sin. I absolutely did not believe it because I don't know what it was. I felt a living force within me. I was always comparing myself to trees and to other people and figuring out why am I like this? Why do I feel this? They also must have a spirit, you know, but but they're not like me. There's something more and above of the life that we all share, even with the animal kingdom that makes us human. And I figured that was the divine in us, and that is what leaves us when we die. Whatever it is, you know, what leaves the body, but it is that spirit. And I lived there. I lived in what was divine about me, and that was always good. 
and we prayed a lot and it was a Catholic school orphanage so we knew the catechism and we knew everything almost by heart and we spent so much time in church but my prayers if the nuns ever knew what my prayers were I I don't know what would have happened to me (laughs) my prayers were very different were very unique they comforted me and until today even though I don't go to church regularly I still feel that power within me the divine within me that's constantly present and I communicate with it. I want to continue a little bit sharing with your journey because you went through so many different things and part of what sounds like was your saving grace was education for you. You found out you were smart. Can you talk about how education became that for you? Yes, and and the orphanage, they educated us only up to the fourth grade. And then after that, you stayed in the orphanage and helped growing the food for everyone and working for the nuns and raising the other orphans who were coming in. So that was kind of your life. Or when you got a certain age, if there was a male suitor who came to look for a wife, because we, Kifugilo girls, were supposed to be a big prize because we were so disciplined. We were such hardworking people. And so people would come and look for a wife. And there's a story there I write about one of those visits. But otherwise, we would just stay there. So I knew very, very early that I had to have an education. And it just so happened that one time the mother superior came and said that she had found money to send some of us to school and only five of us. But school had to be like 200 miles away or far away. There was one that was nearby, the first one, which the students walked to. I was not picked for that one because I thought, of course, I was going to be picked. And I've shown such an interest in education and in school and I was good, but I was not picked. That was the one time in my life I was so despondent. It was the only time I actually tried to take my life as a child. I decided if I don't have an education, what's going to happen to me? I don't want to live anymore. And then about uh, five years later, the superior came and said she had uh, scholarships money. You know, at that time, it was like $20 a year. And that was so much money that the nuns did not have for us. But they, someone had, a benefactor had given it and we were sent to school, five of us. So, and that it, we had to take the bus. It was uh, a school just only for Africans. So we stood out, the five mixed kids stood out like a sore thumb and we were ostracized there even more. But that's where the nun, the headmistress, the same order as the nun said, the orphanage was one of the meanest and cruelest people I have met in my entire life. It was really like going from the orphanage to this school was like jumping from the frying pan into the fire for us mixed race children. And in the end, there were about five of us. Only two of us went back. And one of the ones who went back had a friend there, a teacher who befriended her. And so her life was a little bit easier. I still did not have anybody, but I had education and I had me. And I figured I could go anywhere with those two weapons, you know. So I survived it. And I was lucky at the eighth grade, I was recommended to go to the first secondary school that was started for girls in my country. And that was in 1957. It was started. and But then I went there in 1958. And that school, it was a secondary school. And that school was run by Americans, American Marinol sisters from New York. They were like night and day compared to the German nuns. I mean, we couldn't believe that that Catholicism was the same everywhere around the world, you know, because their attitude about us, about Africans, seemed to be so different. They were easy. They seemed to love us. They enjoyed our culture. They actually told us that we were innocent until we were proven guilty. Like with the other nuns, I was so accustomed to go to church and make up sins because I was a sinner. 
So mm-hmm. you went to God and you prayed. All you did was to ask for forgiveness and for forgiveness. And I found with the American sisters, I went to, to church and the first thing I did was to be so grateful for who I was, you know, and the sins came later. <laughs> so, but I went to this school and in this school, oh, there's a lot I write about that, but this is where I met the one teacher who she was my teacher. She was volunteering a year of her life to teach in Africa and she happened to be my English teacher. And she's the one who adopted me and brought me to America when I was 19. And then she brought me here and took me to her little town of Onamia, which was very little, but I thought it was the biggest place on earth. And her house was really small. And I thought they were the richest people. <laughs> now, now I've lived in America for 50 some years. I just, I say, oh my God, how not? No, but you know, that's all I knew. I, I didn't know much. Unfortunately, Nambu was not immune from sexual predators in the orphanage. Next, she shares with us the controversial truth of the priests who took advantage of her and the residual effects that that has had on her life. Hey everybody, this is Adrian from Feminist Hot Dog, and I want you to join me and my awesome guests as we put the fun in feminism. It's true. On Feminist Hot Dog, we explore all the ways feminism makes the world a better place, no matter who you are. So come hang out on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain on NoCo FM, and don't forget, love yourself and love your buns. See you on Wednesday. Your support means the world to us. Hi. It's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. A brief warning to our listeners. The following episode contains discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. You write about in the book your encounters with a couple different priests. Yes. Can you speak about that to overcome some of that? uh, You know, one of the priests we we really, really admire because he was the uh, secretary of education for the Catholic schools and for the diocese. And so he was very involved with the education of all the children in the older diocese. And he's the one who very often placed kids, commanded what kids should continue school. And so this one priest recommended me to go. And as you know, he, he, he kept giving me rides to school, which was again 200 miles away. So it's a long time to be in a car for me with a white man, even though he was a priest and he gave me some attention and I just couldn't get over that. Somebody actually would talk to me and unfortunately, Fortunately, he went ahead and took advantage of me in many, many ways. But I think when I look back, I should have known better. But I was just so hungering for any attention, especially an attention by a white person or a white male, that to me, I just 
took it, although I fought in my heart and soul, I knew it was wrong. I resisted everything for as long as I possibly could. And yet I was conflicted because it means would it be the end of my education, the one thing I wanted the most. And so many women nowadays are finding themselves in the same situation. Do they take the advances? The men in the Me Too movement, they're afraid their career is going to be ended. I, in those so many years ago, sitting in a car with a Catholic priest, I was so indebted to him for my education. I, I didn't dare say no. So, and then the other priest I also met at another time, he came to take photographs and I was working with him. And he, he was a little bit different from this one because when I look back, I think he genuinely loved me and he, he was willing to even leave the priesthood and all. But I think I came to the realization too, when Kathy, especially when Kathy told me she could take me to America, I had that choice. Can you imagine going with this priest to Italy where he was going to be sure I went to university because I told him the only thing I wanted was an education and to come to America with Kathy, this you know, woman, this lady who was only four years older than me. But I had a secret dream to always want to come to America. And all that will be explained in book two, how this American part of me was there since I was little. And it turns out to be that in the end, I am American, you know. So that's what happened. But you hear about priests and people think that priests abusing kids and all in America and in Europe. It happened every time because they're all human. It happened in Africa. But Africans would be the last people to say anything. In fact, when I went back to the orphanage and I talked to some of the nuns after my books were written, they could not forgive me for writing about the priest. It was just like I was bad. They loved my book, but how did I dare write that? Not all of them, but one of them definitely took me aside and just shamed me into writing about this. Nobody talks like that about a priest. So it's the same thing I faced then, just with all these victims here of sexual abuse who are coming out now. They're just ostracized. They're victimized themselves. And... I did it maybe because I was not in that environment anymore, but I was still scared so many years and I'm not there. My life isn't there, but I was still afraid to talk about it. And so I understand why victims here of sexual abuse sometimes wait years before they have the courage to say anything. And to, to have your voice like that. And to share your truth, how important that is, and and exactly what you spoke of right now, that is the fear that so many women have, that if I speak it, if I speak my truth, I'll be shamed or it'll be denied, and it it intensifies then the abuse. It's like you feel re-traumatized or re-abused. Exactly. Yeah. That was then and I was just coming out here and I used to think American women were so strong. I looked, I thought, boy, they are not like us African women who are so subservient to the men culturally, you know, for the most part. And then I'm finding that just women just like me, I mean, as powerful and as rich as they are, when it came to being a woman and womanhood and all our insecurities, We were the same, no matter what country we were from, because of how we were treated in a male-oriented society. And how it impacts us. Yes, how it impacts our mind and heart and how we're able to function in the world, how we see ourselves in the world. Exactly. Yes, and it, it impacts every aspect of your life. It's not like, oh, it happened then, forget it. Even if you try to forget it. 
You know, you can't. You know, people have asked me about my books, especially the first one, with all the detail I wrote about my childhood. They say, oh, man, what a memory. I can't believe. How can you remember all of that? It blew their minds how much I actually remembered and the detail. I was trying to answer them myself and trying to give them a reason. How come I remember? But the only reason I could come up with is how could I forget? Yeah. It's the only reason. You can't forget, no matter how much you're willing to forget. You can't. Something that impacted you to your very cells in your body. You don't just will it out. It is part of you. It becomes part in your cells. It becomes part of who you are. I agree, absolutely. How did you overcome all that mm-hmm. happened to you? I think it's important yeah. to talk about you did come to America. You did go to the university You've developed this whole sense Mm -hmm. of dance where you're incorporating aerobics for the soul. Is that correct? Yes. Aerobics with soul. Yes. Yes. Aerobics with soul. uh, How I did that again, I honestly do not think I could do it without my fat Mary, without me, you know, because uh, no matter what was done to me out there, I would retreat and have my conversations with Fat Mary and I would always be sure I was going to be able to do it and I would just move on and just continue with my dreams because I I had a cheerleader there who would never ever let me down and I knew that. So that helped me and of course I got lots of help like from Kathy who encouraged me and I mean I could never have done any of whatever achievements I have on my own just me and Fat Mary. The external world, people in America, there were so many people who encouraged me, who helped me in every way from providing my physical needs, my clothes when I came here, I had none and you know people donating things to me and so many people have lifted me along the way through school and all. So it is the society that did all of that. But I really believe that my biggest strength was me believing and loving me and just loving myself unconditionally. Until today, I feel that I'm still doing things I never ever dreamt I would ever do. And it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not afraid. I'm taking risks. I'm doing this. But I just feel that Yeah, if I want to do it, I'm going to try to do it. Sometimes I fail, sometimes I don't. But I believe in myself. And I had no one else to believe in. So that, in a way, was almost a blessing in disguise for me, considering my situation, you know, that I didn't have anyone. So I was able to develop that relationship with me, with myself. And I realized that not everybody can do that. Not everybody even wants to do that. But it worked for me sounds like such a gift. It is such a gift that you were able to do that. Like you're saying, so many people I don't think can if they don't have those external messages. Or sometimes I'll work with someone who had gotten lots of positive messages as a little kid. And then at some point that stopped and they started, Mm -hmm. maybe they entered puberty Mm -hmm. or maybe they entered some stage of their life where they were getting negative outside feedback. And so it changed their inner perception of themselves. So to keep coming yes. back, my sense, Nambu, is no matter what phase we're in in our lives, even if we've never befriended ourselves or loved ourselves, we can start that relationship and really transform mm-hmm. who we are, our relationship with ourselves and the relationship with the world. And whatever circumstances we go through, we can come back and rely on that relationship with self. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I learned that the hard way, and I should say, 
the only thing that actually could have worked for me under my circumstances. I just feel very lucky that I discovered me and all my power, my childhood power, my woman power. When I was very, very young, I just took that power. No matter who said what and how I was treated, I had that power within me to will, to continue, to live, to work hard, to become me and to make myself happy. How do you begin to cultivate a relationship with yourself? How do you claim your own power? Nambu gives us these amazing gifts as the spark continues. I think it is because I started so very, very early and whatever was was told to me in the exterior I mean, in the outside world, I would take it all inside and I would look at it and I would you know, discuss it with my fat Mary and try to understand it and put everything in perspective and then move on. What would you say to listeners? Because so many people don't have that incredible experience. And even though it came through extreme hardship, I, I cannot even imagine. I was definitely close to tears several times just reading parts of your book with the cruelty that you endured and thinking of myself as a little girl and I had two daughters and mm-hmm. then this little girls having to endure anything like that. And it would just bring me to tears. What would you tell people? How did they start that journey, Nambu? How did they start that relationship Mm -hmm. with them? Well, I think we have to begin where we are. You have to look at yourself. Of course, the past has a lot to do with who we are today, but we cannot let the past define us. We cannot give the past that power. We have to take our power back to be, to know that we are actually in control of our lives. No matter what happened in the past, we have control of the present. So we have to begin in the present. Begin by when you have problems, when you have issues. Go within yourself. Everybody has their own fat Mary. I really believe it. We might call them something else. We might not call them anything. You know, it is the part of you that people cannot see. When you see a person, okay, you see their beautiful eyes, you see their beautiful hair, their clothes they're wearing, you know, their jewelry, they smile. You see them, but do you know them? You don't know them unless they let you in. So we all have that part of us that we know ourselves, who we are, but we very seldom go there and stay there and look in there and search in there for who we really are. And it's never too late. You begin right now because you will just discover the richness that you are, that because of society and because of of norms and customs, you just haven't developed that skill of being alone with yourself and listening, listening to that voice or to that inner spirit that is always there. Even though we go out and we'll do something over here, they'll say, oh, I said this, but in my heart I felt this. Okay, you want to go there and do what your heart told you. Don't just, you know, do something over there. So I would just tell people to begin where they are, to kind of take count of their feelings. My book, as you know, is written. Of course, it had to be pretty intellectual also, but my book is written from the emotional point of view. And I think people underestimate emotional intelligence. I mean, emotional intelligence, I I don't even want to call it emotional intelligence because I'm using another word that I always separate from my emotions, you know, the intelligent part. But emotions are intelligent. And 
if when we are feeling something, if we really take the time to go inside and be with ourselves and try to put into words for ourselves what it is that we are feeling, we have so many answers within ourselves and we have a lot of ideas of how we can do it and you solve the problem there. Other people don't solve the problem for you. You solve the problem over there. So I don't know how to tell people, even whether they've had hardships and everybody has a story. Everybody has issues that they have to deal with. I just want to tell them you you start looking at them with yourself. Come up with your own answers. And then there's lots of help out there. But you cannot, that help out there, the therapist cannot help you unless you understand you. It's that journey, I think. And we're all on that path of trying to learn who we are. And unfortunately, in our culture, we get so distracted. I think so. You know, it's like you said, it's the pretty thing here or trying to look so great externally or we get distracted with media or the next shiny object instead of pausing and really Mm -hmm. going within to look exactly at that. When you get that hit in your heart or in your gut that's telling you something Mm -hmm. to stop and, and pay attention. Yes, because that is your true self. That is who you are. Not what the the pictures, not what the movie industry tells you. And if you go in, that is really who you are. And then from there, your individual person, who you are, can decide what about the movie industry, what about makeup, you know, what about food. Then you can feed who you are and you take only what you need. You don't take any excess. I am in so much gratitude for you sharing your journey with us and the beautiful wisdom from your heart that is inspiring and truly is such a beautiful guide for us to embrace this inner journey, to really befriend ourselves. Thank you so much. You know, what you've told me today about being happy to have shared my story and you appreciating it and wanting to talk to me, it has made the hard long difficult road to writing this book and the long difficult life worth it because i can share something i can give something of me that will help someone it is not a reflection of me something i went through that i shared through my books has helped people become their better selves and i don't know what else there is in the world except to be there to help other human beings have a good life and be, you know, better versions of who they are by doing it mostly themselves. Nambu's astounding ability to befriend herself and love herself as a child helped her go beyond just surviving a painful and oftentimes abusive childhood. She was able to cultivate a true relationship with herself and see the divine that was already residing within her. When we realize that oftentimes we are the source of so much of our own suffering and that through our own negative thoughts and limiting beliefs, we hold ourselves back from experiencing peace or love or joy. But this can become a point of power when we realize this and we can begin to nurture, cultivate and grow a relationship with ourselves by going within. As Nambu said, we all have our own fat Mary inside, someone to comfort and guide us if we only stop long enough to be still and really listen. We'll find that we already have the answers there inside of us. 
Our external world can seem crazy and out of control. Perhaps all that is going on in the world right now is calling us to return to ourselves. A reminder that all the love, acceptance, strength, and answers we are seeking are already within us. When we learn how to just be with and love ourselves, we are better able to be more accepting, tolerant, and loving towards others. Nambu also reminds us in her own life example that often the most difficult things we endure become our greatest gift and strengths that we can share with others to help make a positive difference in their lives. Take time to notice the beauty in your own story. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. Find the threads of wisdom through them and share your own important gifts to help lift up others. You and your story matter. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM.